Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Greetings, everyone. On today's show, I have Daniel Gibson. Now, Daniel owns a letting agency or lettings agency that he started when he was 22 after he bought his first house when he was 18. He has a lot of properties um, under his management. I think it's just over a thousand properties. He likes buy to let like me, uh, you know, very similar numbers, actually 30, 50, 60 K purchases and then, you know, revalues at 30, 40 K more. So very interesting uh, to listen to this one if you're interested in uh, buy, refurbish, refinance. He also talks about working on bigger deals, sort of three to six million GDV, and how he actually prefers the buy-to-lets. So I think that's going to be uh, quite insightful for you if you are doing buy-to-lets and HMOs and you're thinking, oh, I want to do a big deal. Maybe this will change your mind. Uh, we also talk about a bit of property education and his thoughts on the area that he invests in, which is the Northeast Ayupman. If you haven't left a review, please do. And as always, PPN Knightsbridge, I am a co-host with Pippa Mitchell, second Tuesday of the month. Not too long ago, we had about 120 people come to the event. So we were packed out and it was awesome. So let me know if you want to come and I'll get you a link to the tickets. Daniel Gibson, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Hey Tej, thanks thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. And also thanks for your, uh, your email that you sent over before, because like I was saying off air, you're pretty much the only person to actually give me a written answer for a blog and actually th- this could be like half a book because there's there's <laughs> so much detail in here and I like I'm really excited to share this with the people listening so before we kind of get into what you're doing now and what's in the future can you tell us like what you were doing before you got into property and then I guess naturally how you uh, found property yeah so I don't have a, a huge pre-property story um I watched my parents um, purchase and invest in properties. Um, so that started, they, they bought their first property when I was age 13. So from 13 year old, I'd kind of seen my parents buying, renting. I was involved in going to the houses. Um, I'd be the one with the, the menial jobs, kind of doing the gardens and, and kind of throwing out all the rubbish. Um, so I had an involvement before I purchased my first property. Um, I worked in the family business um, and then at 18, I studied as a surveyor at university. Um, I was a a sports person before um, kind of working. I was um, in the international performance squad swimming. I was a a GB rower. Um, We had um, quite a lot of, I was the lower levels, sort of the entry levels as a youth. Um, And I made the decision that once I finished university, I let that go scholarships and, and, and things from my sport kind of gave me my leg up in life. I, I worked for for six months um, with another letting agency to gain some experience. Um, took a quick job in recruitment because I was offered a nice big uh, paycheck from a, from a recruitment company. Um, and I got their amazing sales training and worked there for another six months um, before I kind of came into the property world full time. But I, I bought my first house at 18. So a, Again, I'm, I'm not the best person to, to speak to for kind of a pre-property story or how you made the leap. It was kind of 
it was always on the cards for me and something that I was really interested in from a very young age. Yeah. And that's interesting. So what made you give up like the sports? So I, I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I stood in touch with a lot of the, the friends that I made through that and they've gone off and they've won world championships. They've won Commonwealth games. They've competed in the Olympics and they've, they've gone mm-hmm. on to achieve huge things. Um, for me, I made the decision to say I'm, I'm coming to a point in my life where I had to spend two years training to try and get to the level of competition that I wanted to be at. Um, we were targeting trying to qualify um, for the Commonwealth Games and I made the decision that I couldn't train 50 plus hours a week um, and actually have a career. And I made the decision that in my life, what I wanted most was to spend the next 10 years focusing on building up my company building up my businesses at the time I wasn't sure it was all going to be property related I've, I've opened several businesses over the years and um, the ones that have stuck are the property ones um, but that was very I'm very goal driven and it was very much this is where I want to be in 10 years and, and sport I was I was good but I was never going to be at the level that would ever have gotten me the quality of life that I wanted um, and that, that's kind of why I made the decision there was a few injuries mixed in amongst it as well which uh sitting on the sidelines for quite a while prompted that as well yeah. as well okay well, that makes sense and then do you say you bought your first property whilst you were at university yeah i did so um, how i mean most people can't even afford a beer when they're at university <laughs> how how did you afford a a property then and talk me through like the figures and, and what it was yeah so i um i had a scholarship when i went to university and i didn't move out from home um, so I was staying at home. I had no overheads, no rent, no bills to pay. Um, and that meant I had quite a good disposable income as a student. Uh, f- for me, it, that was my goal. I knew that this was what I wanted to do. I'd seen my parents do it and I kind of thought, I can do this. I want to do it. And this is how I'm going to get it. Uh, it was a, a £40,000 uh, bungalow, dorma bungalow, which I bought. It was... Yeah, £40,000. I couldn't get finance and it was from funds that I'd saved. I did some coaching as well, so I had a very good part-time job um, that, that I had a salary self-employed. And that, that's kind of where the funds for that, that first acquisition came from. And and so am I correct in saying you didn't view the property? <laughs> I didn't. I was very confident. Uh, some might say cocky. Um, <laughs> I, I knew... Even at 18, I was, I was very much, I know what's happening. I know what to do. I've, I've seen people do it. And I, I, I missed out on a property at auction. Um, and I was in, on holiday in Wales at the time when the next auction came along. And I thought, this time I'm coming away with a property. And the one that I was going for went over my budget and I was limited. There was very little in this auction that I could actually afford. Um, and I didn't have the funds to do them up either. I had no money left after that. That was kind of everything that I had to put into it. Um, and so I bought this property that came in within my budget, got home from holiday, excited, went through all the process. Um, and then when I eventually did see it, I, I got a bit of a shock. So, uh, I mean, that's, that's it. I think there's people with, you know, like a lot of experience who would, like, who would never buy something without viewing it. Mm-hmm. And there's people with experience who would buy stuff without viewing it. Like that's, yeah, a lot of confidence definitely to, to buy it in that state but i mean it, so when you saw the property you said you were in for a shock what um what was the property like so i um 
I knocked on the door and the gentleman who answered barely opened the door. Um, this was after the completion. Um, it was bought without a survey as well. Um, and this was the first time we'd been in. He opened the door a fraction and kind of peeked his head round. Um, and it took me another two visits before I could actually persuade him to let me into the house. Um, once I got into the house, the gentleman was a hoarder and it was like something you'd see on the uh, the old TV shows where they try to help them get rid of, get rid of everything from the house. There was one walkway right the way through the house. You opened the front door and there was newspapers, books, um, bags of old sort of crisp wrappers all the way through the house. And the only way you could get to another room was to move the things in front of you, behind you, to then step into the next room. It was, it was I'm six foot four and it was above my head height. And if anything had fallen, I don't think we would have, I would have ever got out of the problem. Um, <laughs> that is crazy. Wow. I've never, never seen anything like ever. In the, in the next 12 years, I've, I've been in thousands of houses. I've never seen anything like it. It was one of the most vivid memories I've, I've got in property. Bleeding heck. And so, you know, did you, like, at this point, you're obviously sort of new to owning your own properties. What like, what did you do next with that house and with the tenant and with all the stuff? Uh, well, I had uh, no money. So kind of everything that I had had gone into that. Um Obviously, my, my parents were involved in property and they, they could have helped me out, um, but that wasn't the route that I was going down. And ironically, the gentleman actually turned out to be a very good tenant for the next five years. Um, my money was stuck in the property. The first property I'd bought, I, I put it in there and I had no way of getting it out. Over the next sort of period of months, years, we, I gradually worked with this guy um, and helped him to, to kind of pull his life together a bit. We got we got his belongings out of the house. We we hired skips to kind of... I was in the house myself. We must have filled 15, 20 skips full of belongings. Um, and we cleared the property. And actually behind everything, the property was very nice and it, it, was, it had been looked after. There was no real big problems. Um, and then... He left. <laughs> we, got the, we got the property back to kind of write, okay, it's safe. You can live here. Um, and he kind of got his life back together. And then he said, okay, I'm, thanks, I'm, I'm off now. And we, at that point, we were able to refinance. I was able to refinance the property. Um, so it was an interesting journey. I can't actually remember how long that journey took because it was quite a while ago now. Um, and did you, I think you remember saying from your email, you you got it refinanced, uh, I think it was, was it 75K? Yeah, the uh, the purchase price was forty thousand. I mean, I spent over the next two or three years. It, it did take me a long time to get the money out of that project. It was it was crippling for me to do anything else because I, all, everything I had was tied up there. Um, and we refinanced it, and I was able to pull out more than than the cost of the property and the refurbishment. Um, so we pulled out around sixty thousand um, pounds, which covered the investment that I put into the property and the purchase price. Mm. And at that point I was then able to kind of develop my journey. That's a pretty, that's a pretty good deal. And so, I mean, this property, you said something interesting um, sort of earlier is that this to date, this property has delivered 72,000 pounds in rent. Yeah. Over how many years is that? I've owned the property for just over 10 years. I think so it's, it's nearly in, 12 years. It's interesting that you, I've, I've not really had someone sort of, tell me a, a stat like that and it's quite interesting because 
you know, there's the whole, oh, should I have a holding portfolio or, oh, I don't want tenants. Let me just flip everything. And like on the side of supporting holding things, I uh, we don't really think that, oh, in 10, you know, in 10 years, five years, whatever, it's going to make this much rent and then this much profit. Like it's quite, it, I think it's quite eye opening when, when I kind of read that, I was like, oh yeah, why don't mm-hmm. we like all calculate that more? Because <laughs> you know we're going to hold if we're going to hold a property we're going to do it potentially for our lifetime so it's good to know what it will generate over our lifetime versus what one flip generates um so that's that's a really interesting way of thinking and going back or actually i guess forwards in the timeline you started your own letting agency when you were 22 years old yes so you know you know estate agents letting agents have a not so good reputation um some of them yeah yeah (laughs) um what like what sort of gave you the idea or inspiration to start this type of business um and to start it so i guess early on in your career or your life Uh, to be honest it was more because of the poor reputation that a lot of agencies had um, I came from a, a landlord background. I was a, a property investor. Um, between buying my first property and buying the the agency, uh, my mum passed away, and I had a sum of money which I was given from her estate, which I used to continue my investment journey. I used part of it to purchase another property, um, but I, I was I was young. Finance was very difficult for me to get because I was self-employed um, and also a lot of my income came from property. So banks banks didn't really like that for me and I was getting knocked back for a lot of deals that I wanted to do. I was also very young and there wasn't many investors out there who would be willing to back me with the limited experience that I had. Um, so I looked at how can I start something with relatively little money that has a, a capacity or a potential to grow um, because the agencies that I'd worked with to help me uh, on, on my journey had fallen down in a lot of ways, I looked to set up an agency that focused on investors, on landlords, and developing sort of long-term relationships with people where we can help them develop their portfolios and grow a different business in, in, this, in the market. Hmm. And, you know, for anyone listening who's thinking of starting up a letting agency, whether it's just to, you know, look after their own portfolio and be tax efficient or they actually want to grow a business like you have what kind of tips can you give them or advice or learnings from your time and your current time as a you know as a owning a letting agency first i'd say don't do it (laughs) (laughs) so um the industry's changed hugely since i set up in 2012 um we've had a a boom of agencies within one one time there were 34 agents within a quarter of a mile radius of my office and that's a huge amount of competition um but there was a lot of money in it and more recently things have become a little bit uh, more regulated and also there's been a lot of pressures on landlords and, and their profits so consequently the agents in the market have, have been squashed a little bit um I the, the biggest thing for me and, and the future of agencies is not high street based, it's website based. And for me, a traditional agent, that was a very unusual approach to take because most of my competitors were getting together and whinging about the, the, the development of the prop tech industry. But 
podcasts, Instagram are, are all just a version of that. The, the internet has changed every market and property is one of those. I can now be in contact with investors in Dubai, Australia, America, London, and in Newcastle where I live. Um, nobody needs that office anymore to, in my industry, it's a huge overhead and the amount of returns that we got from that was, was minimal recently. Um, and we've, we've recently made the move to a hybrid agency where we have most of our management staff in, in an office block and we're going to be moving all of our office off the high street um, and into the same block to make ourselves more efficient so that we can work with landlords, work with people in, in the, the current market to keep their costs down and to increase our online presence where most of the, the sort of new business comes from. And do you find that like there's still a sort of cohort of like, you know, maybe old school investors who don't like the kind of online prop tech approach? Or do you think it's slowly shifting? I think it's currently 50-50. I've done a few polls with our landlords that we work with and kind of what are their reasons for using a traditional agent versus an online agent. And every every agent is an online agent. It, It just they also have a, a shop front. And if you gauge how many of their tenants and how many of their landlords come from a shop front, I would argue that it's minimal for most companies now. Um, it's, it certainly was for us. The, the, the online presence was was huge, not just for the agency, but also for finding properties. You've got almost everything you need is on a computer now. You have to go to the properties to see them or not, if you if you want to take that risk like, like I do with quite a lot of our purchases. Um, and then you know on the flip side for all the investors and landlords listening when we go to pick a lettings agent in your opinion what kind of things should we be looking for or asking to make sure that this agent is the right one for us and is going to look after us and our property so i had a i had a meeting this morning with a a new landlord who's who signed up to ourselves this week Um, and i ask every landlord that that signs up with us uh, what their reasons are um, the biggest thing is that you get a feel for the person that you're working with. Um, for us, we're a very personal company where we work on a bespoke basis. We have landlords with anywhere from one property to hundreds of properties uh, that we work with on a let only basis or a management basis. And a big thing for them is they, they first of all look at the fees. So they'll call around as many agents as possible and find out what the fees are. The tenant fee ban coming out in June this year has made a huge difference in this. Um, historically, our our average management, because we also have other agents managing our properties in areas where we can't look after them ourselves. And our historical average was 10% of the monthly rent and half of a month's rent for the, for the let fee for finding a tenant. And we've now been getting quotes from, from agents this year with our tenancies coming up for to change. And they've been calling us a full month's rent to, to find a tenant and 15, 16% of the monthly rent for looking after the property. And that's a huge, huge cost, a huge cost increase to us on one property, let alone the hundreds. Damn, that's a, that's a big increase. So, but when, yeah. when, when I walk into a lettings agency, what should I be asking them? The first thing is what's your fees? So we've kept our fees the same. We've kept our fees exactly as they were previously. We provide a service. Our service hasn't changed. And because we've had impositions from other agents, from 
because landlords now have to bear the whole of the cost. It, that's not their fault. That's something that we've restructured and we've geared our company to working in 2019. A lot of these agents are based in the mindset they were in the early 2000s, the 90s even, some of them. And you need somebody who's active in today's market. The, the first thing I would do is check the prices. Second thing I would do is talk to somebody who's used their service or for, for an unbiased opinion, you go to, to Google reviews. And if your agent is good, they will have people willing to give them positive good reviews that you can get in touch with and speak to directly. At the same time, if people that most people review when there's been a bad experience, if you if you go on Google and there's there's dozens and dozens of bad reviews with the same reasons, then you know that that's a company that really you want to be a bit cautious of. And we refer all of our new clients to to that to that site and say check out our reviews online, talk to our other clients. We we don't have any negotiation on prices or how we work. We'll do the service you want us to do. And we provide a good service and word of mouth and review services are brilliant for being able to find that, particularly if you've only got one house or you've not got that relationship with another agent. It's a huge investment. And if something goes wrong with that, if you've only got one or two properties, that can have a serious impact on people's lives. And you have to trust this agent with, with your property that they're looking after for you. Yeah, absolutely. And so whilst you were, you know, founding and starting and building this letting agency, were you also buying your own property alongside it? Yeah, yes. I've continued to buy from 18. Um, whenever I have funds to be able to purchase a property, I, I buy another one, basically. Um, that's been my sort of goal. It's the only true passive form of income that, I, that I've been able to find. We've tried numerous different businesses across a lot of different sectors and try to diversify away from property and come to the realization that property is actually where the specialty lies for us. And that's how, if I decide I want to go on holiday, I can go on holiday. My income doesn't change. For all I own the agency that manages my properties, I don't I don't work in the agency. Um, I can go off and do, do what I want. It just means I'm not actively buying, not actively looking for new investments. I can take that break, take some time. My, my daughter was born this year, and for the first three months of her life, I was in a, in a very big development that, that took up a lot of my time. Um, and after that, I had a very different attitude towards life. It's, I want to be able to spend time with her, be at home, and not sit in an office mm. all my life. Okay. And, you know, so the funding for the deals or the, the properties that you've purchased during the letting agency growth... Was that your own? Was that investors? Like, how have you funded uh, deals? Predominantly, it's been um, own funds. Uh, working with other people's money was always something that I was a bit more careful with. I'm I'm perfectly happy to risk my funds, and I, I make all the decisions that I want. So it was a big change for me more recently when we started working with investors. Um, but until around three years ago, everything was kind of our own money. Um, Three years ago, we thought there's there's a limit to what we can do with money. Um, we don't have bottomless pockets. We don't have access to to huge funds. Um, so we started branching out, and we worked with. Um, I teamed up with a business partner, and we were we were able to take on a a large development, um, which we converted a grade two listed building into twelve luxury apartments, and that was something which opened my eyes to. If I work with other people, who 
can contribute, whether it be funds or experience or whatever their contribution is, if there's a common denominator that means we can grow together, I'm dramatically more um, able, I'm, I'm, it drastically improves my ability to, to grow and to develop and to build my portfolio and improve my income ultimately and my freedom. Mm. And um, you mentioned like that great you listed conversion there and also a couple of other bigger deals, you know, ranging in sort of the, the GDVs of a few million. Before we get to that, though, what are the kind of what what does like a normal deal look like for you in terms of the figures and, and what it is? So our our bread and butter sort of properties are anything from kind of £50,000 to £100,000 for an acquisition. We always buy with a scope to carry out works. Um, we would generally purchase cash um, and refinance out of the deal to release funds. We've had some very good relationships with finances in the past, but the way we've been able to buy quickly with the best deals and then get a refinance structured, we found is to buy cash and refinance. There are time limits and constraints on that, um, but we're very much focused on sort of lower value, higher yielding properties that generate a cash flow as opposed to your sort of higher value capital appreciating assets, which tends to be more common um, down south or um, sort of in, in city center areas around the northeast. Mm. And how do you find these deals? How do you source them? We've got multiple. It's very different for me because I work with investors and landlords and we have very good contacts that have been built up over a number of years. Um, we've got off-market people who come through me. We've got people who come through solicitors, accountants, um, contractors that we use for properties. People know that I'm buying. I'm approached regularly with opportunities for investing. But we also buy a lot on the open market. There's a limit to how many people come to us direct. And a simple right move or Zoopla search yields infinite results and you can analyze them. And within those properties, I could go online today and find 100 properties that I could buy tomorrow if I had the funds to buy them. It's not difficult. Hmm. So, you know, when people are getting started out, so obviously you've got the contacts and your family are in property, but let's say someone, you know, is, is, is you sort of like, you know, six, seven years ago, yeah. just starting out, what are some of the ways that they can, you know, and they haven't got a lettings agency, what are some of the ways they can build a network like you have to try and to be in a position where finding deals is not difficult? Speak to people would be my biggest piece of advice. Um, that's something which, which you're very good at and I've, I've watched you develop relationships by telling people you're there, telling people what you're doing. Um, every person that you tell will then tell somebody else or you never know what the who the people you're talking to or what they're doing. Um, we've had so many opportunities come since I've been more open about how we work. Um, I'll tell anybody what we do and if they find it interesting or they have a common ground, something develops. The worst thing that investors do is people are scared about talking about money. People are scared about talking about something that they want to do because they're afraid that they'll fail or afraid that somebody will think that that idea is, is stupid or won't work. Um, that's something which stops me from doing things like this podcast interview. I don't like st standing in front of the camera or speaking uh, publicly. It's not something that's within my comfort zone. I could go out and I could do investments. I could do deals all day long. But actually standing up and, and talking to people is something which I've found a, a personal challenge. Mm. But yeah. 
that's, uh, I think that's a, a solid tip. And like, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. You know, like it, it, it does take time to build relationships. You know, it's easy to see, to listen to you or listen to me and, and kind of, or anyone really, and hear them saying, oh yeah, we get off-market deals or, you know, sourcing is not difficult. But what people maybe forget is, you know, you've had six, seven, 10, 12, however many years prior to that to be at a stage where it's not difficult, right? Like, I think most things in business and life that are difficult, the more you do it, the more you network, the more you work on it, the easier it becomes. So it's always good to just, yeah, for people to remember what comes before the overnight success kind of thing. Um, so it's good we kind of shared that. So let's talk about your um, your bigger deal. So you've got a few um, multi-million pound listed building conversions at the moment. Talk me through some of them because that, that's the kind of thing that, you know, I'm looking to be involved with it at some point. And also a lot of my listeners who have maybe have a couple of buy-to-lets and HMOs, they're, they're going to be really keen to to know more about these. Yeah, um, it's, it's a situation of the grass is always greener. Um, I'd always been involved in lower value properties, which were sort of the, the nicer housing benefit properties, the sort of lower value working family properties where you've got somebody renting for 500, 600 pound a month um, for a two, three bedroom sort of semi-detached or ex-council property. Um, and I got bored and I thought I'm, I'm spending this amount of time on these properties and I want to do something that's a bit more rewarding. So I teamed up with a, a business partner and uh, their family are, are very big in, in property in their area. And they had this development that they wanted to do. So we did that. And I mean, in terms of returns, it's been great, but it took three years and it was three years of of heartache, of, of real sort of day-to-day issues. I was working from six in the morning till nine at night. Um, it's just something that I couldn't walk away from. I couldn't step back from. And I've always had that freedom. And I think a lot of people get into property for that freedom. Just because something's bigger, more expensive, more posh, doesn't mean that it necessarily yields a better return. And towards the end of our first development, we were um, approached by a third party who wanted um, us to, to partner with him on a new project. Uh, which we went on to, we did. It was a very similar scheme. Um, it was a bigger value. We're talking six and a half million pounds for that project. Um, and it's the things that I'd sort of dreamt about when I got into property that I'm going to be able to look at this development site and that's mine um, or a percentage of it is mine. And again, I was on site. I was dealing with contractors. I was dealing with um, mechanical problems, listed building issues, planning consents, there's so many restrictions and you can't work with a small contractor that I've been used to. You were dealing with huge corp- like huge corporations that were dealing with multi-million pound developments and we were a very small fry to them. Um, so I sold, I sold my position in, in that development and re- refocused on where I'd grown. And then, and then this year, another opportunity came along to do a, a five million pound development, which was a little bit less demanding. It was already converted into residential and it was more an updating, a modernization and, and changing the, the sort of more like 16 individual refurbishments rather than a full block conversion. Um, so my my experience in the, the larger developments have been great, um, but we've definitely 
refocused into where our past experience was and if something came along again we would certainly do it and we've, we've spoken to and helped with a number of other people doing projects like that but it's, it's not always greener on the other side and sometimes we can we can think by doing this or by changing that we can get more we can do more um, but it definitely needs to be balanced out against what you actually want from your property journey mm. and that's and again that's good because that is realism like that is what <clears throat> maybe you know social media as as good as it is and as powerful as it is sometimes doesn't show you right like that side of big projects you see you know a couple of extra zeros and it's like whoa everything else just gets forgotten um but yeah there's a lot less risk on the smaller properties where yes you're not making you know 200 200 grand profit well potentially you are if you do the same volume in the same time but you know yeah you're right it's about what you want and you know people always say to me ted why do you buy and probably similar to yourself why do you buy buy to lets like they only give you 250 300 quid a month cash flow blah 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 and what you said there is is one of the reasons but and and it's um it's something for people to think about yeah the grass is always not always greener it's greener where you water it if you're um, a donald trump sort of a, a, a you've got hundreds, <laughs> and hundreds of millions of pounds in the bank then five million is nothing to you yeah if you're stretching yourself and, and kind of taking that risk one wrong move can cripple the development um whereas if you invest that money in more properties so if you've got the capacity to buy 10 or 25 million pound projects then it becomes less risky i i wasn't able to do that i'm not able to do that now but i am able to purchase 10 20 at a time of the smaller properties and I think most people can relate to the journey with the smaller properties and there's just as much money can be made from doing those in volume and, and repeating them as can be made in the bigger ones. Mm, absolutely. And I, that just, I think it goes back to the, the big basics of property and business, which is what is your goal? What's your end yeah. goal? What do you, what do you actually want from property? Is it a block of you know 30 flats or is it the money that that gives you? So most yeah. people want the time that it gives you. A lot of people yeah. in property want, yes, the income, but ultimately, it's the time to be able to, to go on a holiday, to spend that money, to to enjoy your life. You, not many people get into property because they want to work nine to five. Yeah, most people get into property for the freedom it gives you. Mm. That's very true. So, uh, you know what um, what are you doing next in property then? So we've we've started um, working with other investors a lot. So it's been a big change. We've come back this year to our sort of 50 to 100,000 pound high yielding properties talking sort of 10% yields and return 25% return on investment in terms of cash put into the deals. Um, we've focused a lot on social media, which is where we met yourself. And that that's kind of where we are. We are developing investor networks. We're developing educational programs where people can come to learn a little bit about the property market. We're not talking about these um, seminars that people go to. The, I have dozens of people come to me saying they've been on this course or this seminar and they're now property experts and they've, they've been on a three-tour <laughs> course. Even they've been on a six-month paid course or or been with a, a company that they've paid, in some cases, 20000 £30,000 to for these, these courses. And they come to me and I say, well, why would I invest with you? You, like, you've found a property online, great, but you've got no track record. And the, a lot of people think that it's just a case of 
property can get you rich quick. And in my experience, it can't. It's a slow process. It's working out your numbers. It's investing cleverly and it's understanding the market. Um, and that's kind of what we're doing. We're working with people to say, one, if you're an investor with funds, we can help you, we can source, we can manage your portfolio. Um, if you're someone who's wanting to get into property, we are a property and a portfolio management and development company. We want our investors to buy more. We want our investors to be able to develop long-term cash generating portfolios. The way we do that is by offering a lower cost course with ourselves to, to walk them through what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. So we'll be taking a property that we purchase um, in December and for the next six months after that from January, we'll be walking through a group of investors in this is how a property is purchased. This is how we found it. This is what it costs us. This is the actuals after the project finished. This is what we've done with it. And that gives somebody confidence that lets them experience the property market. It lowers the risk. And you've actually got some real tangible experience that you can then go on and say, yes, that's what I want to do. And we're hopefully going to be building up our management portfolio with that, as well as obviously buying up, buying more properties and getting involved in more developments um, along the way. Mm. And, um, you know, the property training industry, education industry is very interesting. I'll say that. Um, <laughs> how... And I always ask this to people who do, you know, offer their own training. How is, you know, your average person sitting here on, on the computer looking at you, looking at X, Y, Z, you know, education providers, how can they discern who they should use? I I believe it's 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 a personal choice. Um you you have to find the person that relates to what you want. Um we I despise most of the courses that I see as available. There are some fantastic ones from some people who I've spoken with and um, I've, I've done courses myself over the years, continual development. I've done um, numerous since, since finishing university, um, but the investor targeted courses, I cringe at because all they want is their upfront fee. They're charging a huge cost for someone to sign up their, their their course and these people aren't property investors these people are educational service providers they've got books that they sell that that's where they make their money not from property we are going to be charging a thousand pound for a course for six months which i'm not a teacher i'm not a lecturer that i'm not a life coach or however you want to term it i'm a property investor and what we're doing is inviting people to, to jump inside our journey and see how we do it. And it's a, it's a step forward from our Instagram page where we're, we're limited to how much we can share. This is come to our course, speak to us, talk to us. We'll have a, a chat and investor group where you can talk to other investors in the same boat. There's no pressure to buy. There's no pressure to upsell. All we want is people who are actively wanting to invest in the market and who are perhaps scared or unsure of how to move forward. Whereas I think, that's the sort of course for me that you would want to be looking at, not come along for free for an hour at a seminar at a hotel and then be sold to for an hour because we can see this person's got a nice fancy Lamborghini or <laughs> whatever it may be. Yeah. Cool. I like it. And, um, you know, so whereabouts do you invest? In the northeast? It's the northeast, right? It is, yes. So we, we cover the hook. We cover a big area. <laughs> we the, the furthest south as a portfolio that we have is 
Doncaster, um, and then we kind of go up to to the Scottish borders. But most most of our stock and the ones that we manage ourselves and for other investors are Tynan Weir, Durham, um, Teesside, Northumberland. That's kind of our region. Um, and there's a lot of high yielding properties in there, which we're very, that's why we've developed our model because the properties in that area, it's a high. Hmm. So um, in terms of you know those areas you mentioned in the Northeast as a whole, what are your thoughts on the market in general there? So look, it's, it's a very broad question. So answer it as you, as you like. Changes in the, Margaret, um, in the Northeast, historically, it hasn't changed the same. It hasn't had the same swings that there's been down south. So the properties up here, they don't climb dramatically in terms of capital value. They stay pretty steady um, and they produce a high yield. So there's not been a huge a huge change now, market. It stayed very steady, whereas... A lot of people are, are nervous about that in other areas. You're never going to make a huge capital gain, but you're never going to lose a lot. If you're buying to hold, it's very steady. Um, the markets which have changed in our area, I would say, are more the student-based portfolios that we have. Um, we've seen the build of sort of purpose-built student accommodation, which in our sort of cities like Sunderland and Newcastle, there's been a big swing from, I mean, we've had... We've got 50,000 students in Newcastle um, and they've built 20 to 25,000 new rooms in the last five years in purpose-built blocks. And that has pulled students into the city centres and left properties which have historically been used for student investment um, that have been struggling and they've moved to professionals. That's been the biggest change that I've seen um, in that market. Other than that, it's a very sort of slow, steady market in this sort of area. Hmm. And then in terms of tenant type, I'm not overly familiar with the Northeast. I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be. But for those who aren't, you know, what kind of tenant types have you got across your portfolio? We deal with everything. We're, we're, we're very much, if you've got um, housing benefits, um, you've got sort of lower income families, you've got professional sharers, you've got serviced accommodation, student properties, um, we've got assisted living there's all, all sorts of different markets that we cover. Hmm. Okay. And, you know, is it is it a case of, so look, obviously a lot of people, and you probably get this from landlords, are like, nope, we don't want, you know, benefits, universal credit tenants. Some people don't mind it. Some people don't care. Do you think that, or actually in your experience, do you find that this stereotype about like, you know, benefits tenants is true? A lot of that, we've got about, 30% of our portfolio has some form of, of benefit, whether it be full benefits or sort of a, a disability allowance or something which subsidizes their, their income. Um, and there is a big stigma and there's, there's new regulations come out that you're not allowed to um, discriminate against people for their situations, which a lot of landlords and letting agents don't adhere to. Um, we've got an example where we have a, a gentleman who's worked for the last 30 years and he was made redundant. And now he's in a position where he can't afford his rent. So sometimes employed people can bring with them different challenges. If somebody's on a housing benefit situation, they can have a change in benefit, but you know what you're working with. And whereas with 
families or young professionals that a lot of landlords target, they'll turn over every year, every two years. Whereas a housing benefit or a, a property of that type, there's tenants who've been in these properties for, for longer than we've owned them. There's some people who've been in the properties for over 20 years um, and they just don't move. They like their area. That's where they live. And, and they're content there and they're very easy to deal with. Um, I think sometimes you've got to ignore the sort of stereotypes. We have people who don't allow dogs in properties. I've got dogs. And my motto is that when somebody moves into a property, it's their home. We meet with them. We make a judgment on the people. We do our checks, credit checks, landlord references, and we'll judge somebody on their, on their individual basis rather than stereotyping them into a into a group. Mm. No, that's, that's important and it's interesting because, yeah, there is still that kind of stigma, I guess, but it's good to hear from your perspective as someone who's managing this that actually, yeah, there's not, there's not necessarily, yeah, it's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go to the quickfire round. So <laughs> three by three questions. Let's do this. So the first one is, what are the biggest three mistakes that you have made in property? Uh, the first one we talked about at the very beginning. So I bought my first house thinking that I was invincible. I didn't research it properly. I bought it as, as kind of a gut reaction because I wanted to have a property and got stuck with my hoarder <laughs> because of it. Um, and that was that was kind of my first very quick lesson early on in my um, career. Second thing I would say is ignoring problems or procrastinating. Um, whether it be not making your first investment or not fixing a problem that's raised its head, things need done. And if if you have a problem where there's damp and you think, well, I can I can cover it up and get a tenant in, that's going to come back and bite you ten times worse than it would have if you just resolved the problem. You in a month's time that they quickly realise there is a problem in the property. Your relationship starts off badly, and you have a bad relationship. They leave you can end up in rental disputes. So if you come across a problem in your property, fix it. Um, Tying in with that, a lot of people wait for the perfect deal, the perfect property to buy. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a a perfect deal. Each one will have their own pros and cons. Um, I've spent a lot of time wasting time trying to replicate deals. So I bought a house for £40,000 in a street, so I refuse to pay £50,000 for a, a house in the same street, whereas in reality, it's worth 100000 and I should have bought it. I'm not doing it because it doesn't hit my perfect criteria, and I'm guilty of that still, um, and I'm, I've made that mistake more than once. Mm, very interesting. I think I think it's it's good to use deals as like comparisons, you know, and, and quick ways of working things out when you're on a viewing, but yeah... <laughs> What I kind of um, say to people is if you have a spreadsheet that um, like automatically says yes or no, like so if you if you wire it in so it conditionally formats that, right, if the return on, you know, cash left in or whatever is 25%, you're buying it, you know, and there's no emotion. So potentially for people who, and this is kind of a separate point to that as well, is, you know, when you are, if if you're finding it hard to decide on a property because of subjective factors, like you just mentioned there, Daniel, then maybe having a spreadsheet that just tells you what to do as long as you listen to it um 
it is a kind of way to get around that. Cool. Um, I normally then ask what are the top three tips, but you've given them with the mistakes. So that's all good. And what are your like top three goals for the future? They can be personal, career, business, anything. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big goal person. Um, I've, from the age of 16, um, 15, 16, I've set goals for either personal, sport, business, what, whatever it was. So I currently have my, and I'd say the first thing is set, set goals to anybody out there who's listening to these and thinking, I don't care whether you agree with my goals or whether you think they're unachievable. Um, everybody has their own personal goals and whether you hit them or not, you'll get a lot further with them. So over the next 10 years, I aim to, to own the, the biggest property management agency in the Northeast of England. That's, that's a big goal that we've made strides to work with other investors in order to do that. Um, and I want to, to have an own personal portfolio with a thousand properties. Um, they're my long-term goals over the next 10 years. Short-term goals, um, are kind of ways that I want to achieve that. So the property academy, property workshops that we're setting up, my short-term goal is to get people interested in those because, again, we're putting ourselves out there. People might not want to come and listen to us. They might not want to take us up on these offers. But if we don't try it, it won't happen, and we won't get to where we want to be in 10 years' time without it. So I would like to have something set up next year uh, where we're working with investors starting out in their journey or existing investors looking to develop their portfolios and that that's kind of my my biggest short-term goal my uh, the shortest term goal is always buy a house yeah i'm, I'm always looking to buy a house that's always a goal on, on my list that is a good goal to have i'm, I'm gonna write that in big letters on my whiteboard <laughs> um daniela thank you so much for coming on the podcast if people want to get a hold of you what's the best way for them to do it yeah, so we've got um, our Instagram page, which we've been getting a lot of people kind of getting in touch with us informally on there. It gives you a bit of background about kind of what we do, our day-to-day dealings in the, the sort of properties that we work in. Uh, that page is called Talking Property. Um, our agency is Daniel Craig Residential. They can find us online, um, search for us there. All of our contact details will be in the, the link on your blog as well. Mm-hmm. So if you want to take a look at your blog, our email addresses are there if they want to get in touch direct. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, done. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tej. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.